One announcement I want to make is November 30th, which is Wednesday night following uh, Thanksgiving. We're going to start a Bible study, book study again at, uh, in the, the building next door. Donaldo ordered a bunch of books, and it's a book called Forgotten God, and it's by an author named Francis Chan. If you've never had an opportunity to read some of his books or listen to some of his sermons, he's a pretty... Uh, phenomenal speaker, uh, very encouraging, very inspiring, very convicting. Uh, but he, he writes a good book. He's written several books that are that are good, and Forgotten God's one of them. So uh, I encourage you guys to be a part of that fellowship on starting Wednesday night, uh, 6.30, November 30th, the Wednesday after Thanksgiving. Anybody, what's the date we're going to meet? November 30th. We'll make another announcement next week, I would imagine. Uh, but the books are in the back. And he ordered a bunch. They're $15 a book. Uh, that'll just help cover the cost of what Donaldo, I believe, it, Donaldo and Stephanie had already purchased those books. And so, anyway, enough of that. Let's talk science for a second. Uh, metamorphosis. Anybody know that word? Everybody in science, all the kids just learned that recently, I'm sure, in school or in the last few years. Metamorphosis, by definition, is a change of the form or nature of a thing or person into a completely different one by natural or supernatural means. Another way to put that is the word metamorphosis is found in the Greek. It's from the Greek language, and it means to change or transform in shape. It entails an immature form transitioning into adulthood in distinct stages, going from one type of life form to a completely different form. Uh, different form. So uh, a couple of very basic animals or creatures that go under metamorphosis that we know of is, of course, the butterfly. We have the caterpillar, and it climbs up there, and then one day it turns into a big, beautiful butterfly. Uh, what's another one? Housefly. Okay. Anybody else? Yeah, I don't know. Do, do they do? They do? Okay. I believe you. Um, uh, let's see. Termites is another one. Uh, frogs. I think frogs are the ones that I think are the coolest ones. They go from uh, this little, what do they call them, uh, polywog. They go from a little polywog, and it grows out these little deals, and then it goes from something that swims to something that hops. So it's from a polywog to a frog. So it's just a cool thing when you look at nature, and I had a really interesting conversation a few days ago with someone who was telling me that evolution is fact, and I just scratched my head and it just didn't make sense to me. I feel like creation is fact. And I said, do me a favor and look around this room. Just look around this room and tell me one item in this room that wasn't created. Creative mind. Something put it together. That picture on the wall, somebody painted it. They created it. There's this creative design. So that's our science fact for the day. And it actually has a point with the message today. So the last few weeks... Uh, I've been speaking on this concept of baptism. Uh, it's created quite a stir in a good way of people asking questions and reading and, and, and looking into the word more and looking into the different subjects that we've talked about. We started three weeks ago with the concept of clothing found in Galatians chapter 3 and how the priesthood was clothed. The Aaronic priesthood was a requirement that they be clothed um, and, and ceremonial wa ceremonially washed in order for them to serve as priests of the Most High God. And Galatians chapter 3 talks about how we are clothed with Christ at baptism. Uh, we talked about circumcision in the old law as well, found in Abraham uh, before the law was given to Moses. And then we have the law given to Moses that there must be circumcised on the eighth day. 
and that shows the spiritual aspect in Colossians chapter 2 where their hearts are circumcised by Christ at baptism. And then uh, the last week we talked about John the Baptist, which I think is a much deeper subject uh, than goes just to one week of, of sermon, uh, one week, one message. So John the Baptist, we talked about in Mark chapter 1, verse 4, it says that John came uh, from the desert and he was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so Peg and, and Rick and I were having a conversation this morning uh, as she was getting communion ready just about whether or not John's baptism was for the forgiveness of sins, but didn't actually uh, absolve the sins which happened after Jesus resurrected. So it's just another little piece, another puzzle, another question that can be asked about John's baptism that would cause me to go in Scripture and cause me to go into the Word and say, what the way this is written, how does it tie in with the rest of the New Testament? So all those questions are awesome. They're good. They're, they're good for our soul to, to you know, work out our salvation with fear and trembling to study it out, to look for it as you would for hidden treasure. But one question that I was asked last week was uh, via text, and it says, what do we need to repent of? Is it big things like murder, or do we need to repent of something as small as stealing a pencil? And I thought about that pretty much the first three or four days before I started putting this together in my mind and then on paper. Uh, Usually I put it on paper towards the end of the week, sometimes... Sunday morning, I'll be thinking about it all week, and I'll wake up, and I'll just have a sermon going on in my head, and I'll put it in a little compartment, and then I'll start typing it up uh, in the morning. It doesn't take long to type up, but uh, what do we need to repent of? And I think it's important for us as a church body, as a human, as a Christian, as a follower of God, as someone seeking God, is to understand what John was preaching about. What is a baptism of repentance? And in order to understand that, maybe I should have gone back and preached this before John's baptism, but what is sin and what is repentance? Those are two major uh, issues or major items or major subjects in the scriptures is to talk about what is sin and what is repentance. And so this morning we're going to look at that, and anybody that's heard me preach at all for the last couple of years has heard me say that repentance is an archer's term. I like bow hunting, my kids like bow hunting, my friends like bow hunting, and the word sin means miss the mark. It's hamartia, H-A-M-A-R-T-I-A, and it just means miss the mark or an offense. And it was an archer's term in the Greek games when two archers would go against one another, and if they got and they shot an arrow outside of the perfect circle, they sinned. They missed the mark. There was the perfect circle. Anything outside of that is missing the mark. It's like uh, playing, it's the same as playing darts. You know, the perfect mark is the, the bullseye. Boom, you're outside of the bullseye. You have sinned. You have missed the mark. So the question begs, what is the mark? Right? It's to say, if the, if the word, the definition of the word is missed the mark, what is the mark? And it's very simple. I think the mark is perfectly obeying God's law. That's the mark. That's what sin is. And so in order for us to understand sin, in order to understand repentance, to be able to understand what is a baptism of repentance, we've got to start at the first time sin was mentioned in the Bible. Now, the word sin in Genesis chapter 4, we all know the story of Cain and Abel. And Cain had killed Abel because Abel had brought the fat portions uh, to God as a sacrifice. And, and Abel, or Cain didn't, you know, offer as, as good of, he brought some fruits of the soil. And so he kills his brother. And, or before he kills his brother, um, the Lord said to Cain in verse 6, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? 
But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now the concept, the subject that the Lord is talking to Cain about is sin. And he says, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. Sin desires, it sin desires to have you, but you must master it. I left my ESV, I told you, and I do have all the notes, by the way, that are back there if you didn't grab them on the way in. If you want to grab a piece of paper, or if you don't, grab it on the way out. Who has the ESV version right now? Does anybody have it? Efren, thank you. Will you read 4.7? It reads it a little different, Genesis 4.7. Its desire is what? Contrary. Yeah, that's the... So contrary is the word that I was looking for in, in some of the original languages. Is that sin is contrary to you. Okay, that's important because we have sin, this idea of missing the mark, missing the perfection of God's law. And God tells uh, Cain that sin is contrary to you. And the reason that I, I bring this up is because there's this side note Does God, and I have this side note after my next point, but I'm going to make this point anyway. Um, The Ten Commandments, I'll just make that point. The Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, God gives the nation of Israel these Ten Commandments, and so go to Exodus chapter 20. Keep in mind that word contrary. Um, In Exodus chapter 20, God is talking to Moses, and he, He gives them the Ten Commandments. And at the end of the Ten Commandments, He says, uh, when the people... Moses says, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. They were in fear of God as God is giving them the Ten Commandments, the first big Ten Commandments that God gives to the nation of Israel. And then it says, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. People don't like this concept of fearing God because they feel like God has been painted, Jesus has been painted this picture and we see it where he's sitting down on the rock and he's got this little lamb and he's holding this little lamb and all these children are around his feet, which is true. There is a side of Jesus that is that. But there's also a side of Jesus that says we're to fear God. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. All has been heard and this is the conclusion of the matter by, uh, by Solomon and Ecclesiastes. Fear God and keep His commandments. And so Moses tells the nation of Israel, God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Now it sounds like a mean God, and some people that are outside of Christianity will say, well, that's a sinister God, that's a a narcissistic, tyrannical God. I go, no, that's a God that created you, that knows you intimately, that knows your inside, He knows your mind, He knows what's best for you. He knows what's best for you. And so when it says in in, in Genesis chapter 4 that sin is contrary to you, sin desires to master you, or desires to have you, but you must master sin. Does that make any sense on the sin concept and why God hates sin so much? It's because it's contrary to who we were created to be. That's what sin is. Sin sin is there, and its, its desire is opposite of what our true 
nature is, what our true God-given, this is what God wants you to be, this is who God wants you to be. And so when we're given these, these Ten Commandments in, in the, the book of Exodus, it kind of answers the question in my mind that sin, as well as the 360 or 355 other rules that are given in the Old Testament to Moses and the nation of Israel, sin is a breaking of any of those commandments. Do not wear wool and linen together. Do not uh, plow a field with a donkey and an ox. Do not mate two different kinds of animals. Do not do this. Do not do this. There's just a constant list of do nots. And anything outside of that do not that you, you disobey is a sin. It is a missing the mark of God's perfect law. That's my understanding of what sin is. And I get that understanding from the book of Romans. And Paul is writing in the New Testament to the church at Rome. And in Romans chapter 3, he gives us this idea. The law is, is basically there to help us understand what sin is. So if the law never said anything about stealing or lying or coveting, if it didn't say, if it didn't say do not steal and I picked up something and stole it, is it a sin? Some commentators would say yes. Some commentators say no. But if you... If you if your son or daughter runs across the street and you never say, don't run across the street, are they disobeying? The philosophical argument. If you've never said, don't do this, and they do it, are they disobeying? So in Romans chapter 3, in verse 19, it says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Brooke, what does yours say again? Through the law? Yes. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the law, we become aware of sin. Through the law, we become conscious of sin. We know what sin is because the law says this is what sin is. These are the laws that I'm going to give you. If you break these laws, you have sin. That's this idea of sin. Now, the reason we're talking about sin is because we need to understand what sin is to understand repentance. We need to understand what repentance is to understand John's baptism of repentance. So now we know, I hopefully we can boil this down to the most simplistic understanding, is that sin is breaking God's law. Hands down, breaking God's law. That's what sin is. It is through the law we become aware of what it is. So when we don't do what God says, or we do what God says don't do, we have Come on, work with me here. Sin. All right, good. Now, what is repentance? What is repentance? Repentance, there are four Greek words that are all a derivative of the word repent or repentance found in the New Testament. Those, of those four words, they are used 65 times. So 65 times in the New Testament, there is a derivative of the word repentance found in the New Testament. 
And if you were to take all of those verses and you take the, the story of what is the context of the verses, the word repentance can get summarized in the, the, these next four points. Repentance, so we, we know what sin is, but now we're looking at repentance. Repentance is a new knowledge, a new conviction, a new decision, and then a new direction. Okay, I'm going to give you an example because I just went through them real quick. A new knowledge, a new conviction, a new decision, and then a new direction. I'm going to give you a biblical example, and then I'm going to give you a practical example. So the biblical example is found in Acts chapter 2. I think there's someone coming up the door here. Might need, oh, he got in okay. We might have to sing happy birthday again, Rita. I'm just kidding, we won't do it. All right, so this concept, good morning, come join us. And this concept in Acts chapter 2 is the concept that I'm going to try and share with you on what is repentance. So repentance is a new knowledge, a new conviction, a decision, a new decision, and then a new direction. Now, when I talk about direction, I want you to think about, like, I'm going this way, and then I'm going to turn around and go this way. That's a new direction. So in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, anybody who puts his hand to the plow and looks backwards is not fit for service in the kingdom of God. So he's referring to a direction. So he's walking this way, and he changes and he's now going in the, he's putting his hands to the plow, and he's, he's going forward, and then all of a sudden he starts doing this, like, oh, I want to go back, or I miss, that, I miss that way of life over there, and that's the new direction, he's going this way, but he's looking back, and he says, anybody who puts his hands to the plow and looks back is not fit for service in the kingdom of God, so he's talking about going a new direction, so you have knowledge, conviction, decision, and direction, story, Acts chapter 2, we know the story, starting in verse 1, I'm not going to read the whole passage, uh, starting in verse 14, actually. Acts chapter 2, verse 14 says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, talking about the eleven apostles. This was after Jesus had ascended into heaven. He had resurrected from the dead. He spent 40 days, and then he ascends into heaven. So he's in heaven at this point, and the disciples are around on the day of Pentecost, and the and tongues of fire came and rested on them. They all began to speak in new languages. Seventeen different languages were present at that time. And these people were like, wow, they're talking to us in languages we can understand, yet they're from Galilee. And Peter stood up with the eleven, he raised his voice, and he starts talking to the crowd. And there's an estimated anywhere between one and three million people in Jerusalem at the time for the day of Pentecost, because you have people that are coming from all over Jerusalem, or all over Israel, and they're coming to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost, and for that whole, the feasts that go on at that point. And so he's there, and there's all these people, I don't know how many people were in the crowd, but Peter is speaking to these people and he starts talking about David the patriarch and he starts talking about Joel the prophet and he gets to the end of his, his sermon which lasted about a minute and 45 seconds and he said to the people listening, listening there in verse 36, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. He just gave them a piece of information that they didn't yet understand or they didn't have or they didn't, weren't convicted of it yet. So he, he goes through this, this story of Jesus and he talks about David the patriarch. He was buried, but Jesus was raised from the dead. And then he says, and God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. They have a new knowledge. Okay? It's at that point they have a new knowledge. 
the very next verse, the very next verse says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. They believed. They understood. They had the new knowledge and now they have the conviction, oh my goodness, I put Jesus on the cross. And so they had a new knowledge, now they have a new conviction, and then they have a decision when they said, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And then the very next verse says, those who accepted his message, after he pleaded with them many other words, save yourselves from this corrupt generation, it says, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Decision. They had a new knowledge. They had a, brothers, what must we do? They, they believed, and they were, they were convicted in the heart. They, they had a knowledge. They had a new conviction. They made a decision based on what Peter had said, repent and be baptized. They said, okay, so about 3,000 were added to their number. 3,000 were baptized and added to their number that day. And then they had a new direction in verse 42. It says, they, the same people that the author Luke is referring back to about the 3,000 were baptized about, those same people, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. There were four things they devoted themselves to when it came to making the decision. And now they have a new direction in life. They're starting to focus on... The word devoted there means to be earnest toward, to be constantly diligent, to, to persevere, to adhere closely. So they were focusing on the apostles' teaching after they had made this decision. It's a new direction. That's a, pract- that's a biblical example of what a repentant person looks like. Now, I have a story to tell you. When I was young, I, I ran around with a few guys that, that stole things. They, they would take something that didn't belong to them. And I was taught, not really, that stealing was okay. I was taught my whole life that it's no big deal. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. If you find something that belongs to somebody else and they don't know it, you stick it in your pocket and you don't get caught, then it's okay. If you get caught, you've got to deal with the consequence of maybe getting hit in the face. But if you take something and you don't get caught, that's okay. It's no big deal. They obviously didn't want you to just keep it. I went to... I went to I played baseball with a guy in junior college who was a, what do you call it, a kleptomaniac that just took stuff. And I got him a job at this local place that I worked at, and we, we made smoothies. I've had about 50 different types of jobs, been fired a bunch. So I had all these smoothies. I'd make these smoothies, and this guy goes, hey, I want to get a job there. So I get him a job, and he and I worked on the same shift, and the boss comes to me, and it was actually my mom that helped me get the job in Fashion Valley at this, this little mini-mart place. The San Diego Chargers used to come there and get these fruit smoothies and Padres guys, and it was kind of a cool place to work. I was 18, 19 years old, and, and so I got him this job, and the boss comes to me, he's like, hey, I need to talk to you about something. Um, who's been doing the counting of the drawer, the cash drawer? And I said, well, sometimes I do, sometimes Cliff does when we work together. He's like, oh, okay, I'm just curious, and... So I didn't think nothing of it. And about a week later, the schedule comes out, and he and I aren't working together anymore. And the boss comes to me about two weeks later and says, hey, I just want to let you know that the, your, your drawer has been right the last couple of weeks. 
I think, oh, good, I was hoping I wasn't messing up counting the drawer at the end of the night. Well, my buddy Cliff got fired because he, he had, what do you call them, sticky fingers? He, he, was a th he was a thief, so he would steal 20 bucks out of the drawer and, you know, 40 here and there, and this is what he was doing. He was stealing. Now, those type of people that I knew, I thought it was okay until one day this old man comes up to me and he says, I want to talk to you about something. There's this God out there, and in uh, Exodus chapter 20, the very the eighth commandment he gives is thou shalt not steal, and stealing is wrong. It violates God's law. I was like, oh man, I didn't realize that. I thought it was okay to steal as long as you didn't get caught. He's like, no, God says it's wrong. I go, well, I'm, I'm not going to steal anymore. And I go home the next day or that night, and I devise a plan to rob Wells Fargo. Notice how I didn't say home loan. I rob Wells Fargo. Did I repent? No. I didn't repent. I, I, I like, oh, I feel so bad about it, but I'm just going to keep doing what I've been doing. That's not repentance. Now, for the record, if I had repented, truly, and I stopped stealing, and I see $5 on my brother's you know, next to his bed on his drawer, and I was like, oh, right on. He's not looking. I believe at that point, God says, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not who you are. Put that back. I gave you my spirit to help you understand and convict you what's wrong. And so sometimes old habits die hard. So I'm not preaching a Christian life of perfection. What I'm preaching is a Christian life that pursues perfection that pursues being more like Christ, that pursues being more of who God wants us to be. Is that making sense? I don't want you to think I'm up here going, well, I repented, but then I did something wrong one time, so do I need to like start all over at the beginning? No, it's a process. It's a marathon. It's a continual thing. You're getting closer to God and being more Christ-like the longer you live if you're pursuing Him as your Lord. Now, I wrote final here, what is repentance? I don't want to belabor the idea, but repentance is a change of mind a change of desire, and finally, a change of action. And all three of those, those first three things come after a new knowledge is presented. That's repentance. So we have sin, which is a breaking of God's law, and repentance, which is a change of mind. After the new knowledge comes, a change of mind, a change of desire, and a change of the action. So in verse, uh, in, in Hebrews... We're getting this, this idea that John the Baptist came and he was preaching a baptism of repentance. And so if you go to Hebrews chapter 6, there's a study that I'm, I'm likely, if you're interested in this study, we're going to start it at our house here, most likely after the holidays. We're going to do a Sunday night study. And I'm going to go over this, the, the elementary teachings about Christianity. And I'm also going to go over the basics of the Bible. If anybody's interested in being a part of that, it's going to be a potluck type deal. But in Romans chapter 6, or I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 6, um, one of the first things that, the first thing that the writer of Hebrews talks about as an elementary teaching is repentance from dead works, or in some versions it'll say repentance from acts that lead to death. It, depending on, it depends on the version of the Bible you're reading. It could say repentance from dead works, uh, which is what I believe the ESV says, or it will say, repentance from acts that lead to death, which is what the NIV says. So, this idea is that we don't want to, again, lay the basic foundational elementary truth doctrine of the concrete of what is repentance 
but they had to because they needed to talk about deeper things. But the subject is repentance from dead works or repentance from acts that lead to death. Now, what are dead works? If, you're, if he's writing, most commentators believe that he's referring to the Jewish people because he's, he's writing to Hebrews, which are Jews. But there are plenty of commentators out there that say this works both for the Jew and it works for the Gentile. Because if you take the NIV translation, which says uh, repentance from acts that lead to death, we can look at the acts of the sinful nature in Galatians chapter 5, which we'll look at in a minute. Or you can look at the acts or the, the dead works, which he's referring to, I believe, to the Jews. Now, back, remember back in Romans, we read a little bit ago, Romans chapter 3. Are you guys awake, by the way? Okay, I don't want to like go over some stuff. I just want to make sure you're paying attention. If I need to stop preaching here, uh, Justin's got a hot date with a big bull elk up on unit 40. So he's okay if we, st- we stop early. But um, in, in Romans chapter 3, uh, verse 19, again it says, Now we know what, that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, talking about the Old Testament law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, um, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law, Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. In verse 21, it says, But now, the righteousness of God, a righteousness from God apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness comes from God through faith in Christ to all who believe. In Jesus Christ to all who believe. So he's saying that no one, I have underlined here, no one will be declared righteous um, in God's sight by observing the Old Testament law. No one's going to be declared righteous in God's eyes by observing the Old Testament law. So when he says we need repentance, we're asking what do we need to repent? I'm answering the question that I got last week. What do I need to repent of? In this context, if you were a Jewish person, you would need to repent from the idea that we could be justified by law-keeping. We can be righteous in God's sight by being perfectly obedient to the Old Testament law. In Galatians chapter 3, he has to reiterate it because Galatians, there was this stuff going on in the church and uh, they were saying that you needed to uh, start, continue if you were a Gentile, continue to obey the Mosaic law. In Galatians 3 verse 10, the writer writes, All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. No one is justified before God by observing the law. He says it again earlier in Romans chapter 10. He says, My prayer is for the Israelites is that they may be saved. But their zeal, he says, I can testify that their zeal, they're, they're, fire, they're on fire for God, but it's not based on knowledge. It says, since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God, they sought to establish their own. Christ is the end of the law, so that there is righteousness for everyone who believes. So what he's saying in the book of Hebrews is that the Jewish people needed to repent of their reliance on the Mosaic law. 
among other things, but they have to repent on their reliance on the law of Moses. And then I would ask, well, what about the Gentiles? Do the Gentiles also need to repent of anything? And if you look, we see this, this, this passage that we probably ought to study more and more, and it's this idea of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7. through And Jesus, we have the law, which is very clear. Now I'm going to start talking to most of you, or all of you, because you've got this, this, this Gentile blood running through you. Um, there's this, God, this concept that Jesus says to his people, hey, you guys, uh, and now you need to ask yourself, well, what do I need to repent of? And Jesus says to his people, hey, you've heard that I wrote, do not murder. Remember that in Exodus chapter 20 when I gave it to Moses and he gave it to the Israelites, do not murder. I tell you, if you, if you even say something mean to your brother, you've murdered. I don't want to paraphrase it. I'm going to read what he says in Matthew chapter, go to Matthew chapter 5. I think this hits a little bit closer to home for us, but in Matthew um, Matthew chapter 5, he says, you have heard, verse 21, so the answer to the question, what do I need to repent of? You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. So, so God gives these rules in the Old Testament and then he goes, by the way, that was a physical thing. Just like clothing to the priesthood was physical, just like circumcision to the Israelites was physical, just like murder to the Israelites was physical. Now I'm going to turn this into a spiritual application. You have anger in your heart towards your brother, you're a murderer. You're guilty of murder. He raises the bar from physical to spiritual. Now you want to really get deep in the weeds here? You really want to be convicted, specifically men? You want to be convicted? Let's go to adultery. It's easy to look at someone that's committed adultery physically and cast the finger and point at them. It's easy to do that and say, look at that sinner. They've strayed. But look at Matthew chapter 5 when it says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Guys, now we're getting into some real stuff here. Now we're getting into true repentance and what God calls us to. And I'm not just picking on the men, but I'm going to pick on the men. There's plenty I can pick on the women about, but let's pick on the men. When we look at these passages and we have this physical example of murder, or we have this physical example of adultery, and yet we're secretly hiding in this closet committing adultery in our heart. You see, Jesus calls us to a life of repentance. What we were talking about, Rick, before in, in that room. He calls us to a life of repentance. He's not calling us to a one and done, I'm repentant and I'm good. That's not what He calls us to. He recognizes that sin desires to control you. Sin desires to master you. That is sin's goal, is to master you. And Jesus says, but you must master it. Oh, I'm sorry, it didn't say to control you, to master you, but to, it's contrary. Sin is contrary to what God created us to be. But we must master that. And right after the adultery part, 
It says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better to go through life for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. That is a scripture that is a tough teaching from the creator of the universe. That's what he is telling us. And so when he said, what do I need to repent of? Everything. When you bow your knee to the throne, when you bow your knee at the cross, when you bow your knee to the king, what you are saying is, when you convict me of something that I know is wrong in your sight, I'm going to turn the other way and I'm going to start following you. That is repentance. That is true, biblical, godly repentance. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, which is division, Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I did before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires." There's this concept in the church, and it it is everywhere in the church throughout the world. And it's that repentance is just, man, I feel bad. I'm sorry I did that. And that's where it ends. And I don't, in fact, I know, I don't think, I know there's that God opposes the proud because grace is the humble. I think you'll agree with me on this. I know that repentance goes deeper than that. I know that because the Bible is very clear. Repentance is a knowledge with a conviction, with a decision, with a new way. That's repentance biblically. And so when, when, Paul, or when, when John is preaching this baptism of repentance, He's calling these people to a new life. He's saying, you've got to change what you've been doing. You've got to change the direction you're going. Now, this is just real Bible stuff. You may not hear it in other churches. You may just leave and be happy and and go lucky. And that's fine. Sometimes we need that. But I'll tell you what, I need a little bit of, I need a little bit of wooden pews sometimes. I need a little bit of, man, I want to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. I want to make sure I'm on the right side of God because i got eternity to spend with the King and I want to please my Lord and I want to please my Savior. And I can get transparent with you and tell you years ago, years ago, one of my biggest struggles was anger. It was like zero to 60, just like that. And I can tell you, I can tell you the moment it changed. The moment. I, th- I haven't even talked to my wife about this message do you know what story I'm talking about? Where were we? On the way to Denver. We're driving on the way to Denver, and I was wound up like an eight-day clock, and I was 
just, we were going to a funeral for Gavin Whitrock. And we're driving down, and I have a pet peeve that when you're in the passenger seat and you're giving me directions, you give me at least a mile so that I can make a decision because I drive in my rear view mirror and I drive in the front. I want to know, okay, I don't want to cut across five lanes. Adam's laughing because he's in the same boat as I am. It's like, give me directions. I want to know where I need to get off. And Brenda's like focused on other things. She's thinking about, you know, we're getting ready to go to one of her mentors, woodworking mentor's son's funeral. He died at 43 of bile duct cancer. It was, a, it was a very tough time. And she's got her head elsewhere. And she's like, oh, you need to turn right there. And, and it passed me, and I, I, I lost my temper. I got angry. And she calmly just said, you have a real anger issue. It's real. And you need, to, you need to fix it. And it convicted the socks off me. The way she said it was like, whew, she's right. And I prayed, I prayed right then and there. I said, God, I mean, I asked God, take away my anger. Take it away. Take away my anger. And I'm not saying that occasionally I don't, you know, grab the five and then go, oh, oh that's, not, that's not who you are. But I can tell you that that anger, I felt that way. God said, you got it, son. I'm going to help you with that. And I don't feel like I get angry like that. I, well, I don't get angry like that anymore. It's just not, it's not part of my nature anymore because God said, okay, I'll, you want it? I'm going to help you with it. But I had to mean it in here. I didn't want to displease God, my Lord and Savior, and affect my marriage with my wife. That's a practical application thing. And every one of you right now are thinking of something you need to repent of. Or you will be on the way home. And that's good. That's good. It's not a matter of I'm better than so. It's a matter of I want to please my Lord and Savior. I want to please Jesus on me being more like His Son. I want to be better for Him. I want to master sin. I don't want it to control me. And there's areas in every one of our lives that we need to repent of. You're in, you're in company. You're in good company. Every one of us are in that boat. I don't believe that, for the record, as I was driving there and like, ah! I don't believe that I was less saved in that moment than I was when I became a Christian three years prior. I don't believe that. What I do believe is God saying, oh, I'm going to... I'm going I'm to make you a little bit more like my son. I'm going to help you a little bit. Be, be more like my son. Is that making sense? Sunday after church, uh, Gavin Hanks came up to me and he says, I, I need to have a, we need, a, we need to meet this week. I said, okay. Whatever you want to do some more studying. We've been studying, you know, on phone calls and had a Bible study at the restaurant a couple weeks ago. And when he was younger, I think we were six or seven, we were baptized, um, eight. And Gavin's got a good story. He got a, if he wants to share it with you, he will. It's his story to tell. Uh, but he, uh, he walked away for a while. And... He's been listening to the messages and, and he's been 
studying the Word, and I really admire your depth of knowledge of the Scripture. Every time we talk, you understand, and I believe God's sharing with you. He's gotten some good counsel that he hasn't always listened to, and, and just recently he's decided that that way of life wasn't for him. And so he's, uh, he decided that he's going to kneel at the cross, and he understood repentance. He understood what God is calling him to. And so on Monday around 6 o'clock or so, uh, there was a handful of us there, and we baptized Gavin in the Colorado River. Um, and the water wasn't as cold as I thought it was going to be. Uh, I wasn't going to wear fishing waders because Brenda said I was a sissy preacher if I wore fishing waders. So I was in shorts. <laughs> but... Uh, there was, a, there was a period of, of surrender that came in Gavin's heart that says, I, I want to surrender. I want to bend my knee to the cross. And is that, amen is right, brother. Now, is that path going to be easy? Well, no. No. There's always going to be struggles. Always. There's always going to be struggles. Every day of our life. I think you said it, you said it this morning. Every day of our life, there's going to be struggles. But you can't start on the path of sanctification until you bend your knee. You can't. That period of sanctification where we're becoming more like Jesus, it's a process. And then one day, Lord willing, through the blood of Christ, we'll hear those awesome words, well done, my good and faithful servant. If that's if bending your knee, if bending your knee to the King of Kings has yet to take place in your life, when's, when's the right time? When is it going to happen? You going to wait? You going to wait six months? You going to wait another year? Wait two years? You going to justify everything now and just say, no, I'm fine? I can go hear a message that tells me I'm fine. I can name a couple places you can go, and you'll, you'll feel fine. But there's always going to be something nagging deep down that tells you, I haven't really submitted to the king. And that's what this book's all about. From beginning to end, that's what it's about. He's either going to be your king, he's going to be your lord, or he's not. That's the beauty of free will. That's the beauty of choice. We can choose to make him our Lord and Savior. Choose this day whom you will serve. We can choose or not choose. I think that's why Peter was warning the Israelites. In Acts chapter 2, he said he warned them and he pleaded with them. After he said, repent and be baptized, it says with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. It's a corrupt generation that we're living in. And they were living in. And the generation after them was living in. And it just... Every generation is corrupt. Every generation is corrupt. And he's saying, save yourselves from that. Bend your knee to the cross. Uh, I will try and have like an upbeat sermon next week. I think this was good because I... <laughs> but I think knowledge is good. I don't want to go through... Lo- I mean, I, that's like blindfolding me down I-70 or something. Like, don't blindfold me. I want my eyes wide open. I want you to tell me where the curve is and how fast I'm allowed to go on it. And if it says 40, I'll probably do 50 because I feel like I can hit the corners pretty good if it's a dry road. But I'm still, I'm not going to do 80. 
because I don't want to end up in the shoulder on the other side. So I want parameters. So when you come here on Sunday morning, I'm going to do my best to give you God's parameters. That's my goal. All right? Love you guys. I uh, hope you have an awesome Sunday. And communion is...